Hi and welcome everybody. This is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development and it is our privilege today to have with us Dr. Michael Brown. Michael, great to have you with us. Welcome. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to you, this. You have such a, a wide and deep experience in emergency management. I'd love for you to share your background in EM and um, in the Air Force and what led you to form uh, One World, One Way Foundation. Oh, I love that question because you know I like to talk. So um, I initially, uh, my father was in the Air Force. And so I've lived in uh, several other countries. And in living in those other countries, they kind of made set the, the uh, 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 forefront, the foundation for me looking at the world through a different lens. And so I, I kind of shed nationalism and said, wait a minute, you know, having lived in the Philippines and having lived in Germany and England and, and uh, Puerto Rico, my, I had a world view. And that's how One World, One Way came up. Now, my own experiences in the Air Force only heightened that because in the Air Force, I served as an intelligence officer and I served as a, a nuclear weapons officer. And having seen those things, which are very secretive and behind, I overlaid that on how it affects going forward the whole world and our interaction in the world. It also kind of plays into emergency management, even though it's very holistic. Um, to some degree, when people think of emergency managers or emergency management, they really don't have a complete view. An emergency manager, you can think of as being the brain. Well, to the right is his right arm, and that's the fire department. To the left is law enforcement. And then, of course, you have the public health. And all of those players and all of those parts play into emergency management. Most emergency managers and emergency management departments have absolutely very few resources to rely on. They have to re rely on their ability to coordinate, get along with, and work with others. Therefore, I thought about it and I said years ago, I said, you know, there's only one way for us to work together. And I came up with the idea, oh, wow, oh, wow, one world, one way. So, bam, that's how it happened. That's really clever. Do you think that your background and the places that you've lived increases and changes your perspective about people working together to solve problems? Yes, because there is no problem under the sun here in America that people elsewhere don't have. We sometimes take for granted in the West, particularly in this particular country, that our resources and the things that, we're, that we have access to, we take those for granted. When you live in other countries that may not have those resources, um, uh, that have a very anemic, anemic, uh, anemic, constrained uh, 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 systems, um, it's very difficult. We should be very happy about the things that we have in this particular democracy. And so I don't take those things for granted. It's very difficult living in other countries under other different uh, directives and governments. I don't, I don't judge them but I know how difficult it is just in getting an education, um, which is why I applaud your institution. It's very difficult. Education, I say, is the mortar to the strength of communities. Hmm. I love that you have a commitment to education and sharing what you're learning in your research and your experiences. In your domestic preparedness article, you wrote about the sense of whole community and the whole community approach. Why don't you tell us about that and the importance of it and particularly within the context of a national preparedness system or national preparedness plan? 
I think it went back. I was looking and doing some research and the United Nations had already figured this out a long time ago. The UN said, you know, we have to gather all of the resources of all of the citizens in order to make ourselves more effective doing challenges. We figure that out and then we come up with this concept of national preparedness system. And on the national preparedness system, we said, well, you know, we got this national preparedness system and we need to come up with a whole community concept. I'm like, really, fellas? What took you so long? So we said everybody in the community needs to be forthcoming and put forth in order to bring their resources and their capabilities to bear because they are, they're all different. But if we bring all of those resources together and we provide at different echelons what is needed to the lower echelons because we have more resources, then we can all build a more resilient communities moving forward. The challenges are, and we say this in FEMA and we say this in this country, all disasters and all challenges for social disruptions are local. Yes, they start within the village, the town, they go to the city, then the county here, and then the state. They all start local. When, mm. it, when the challenge exceeds the capacity of that lower echelon, then we go help and then the next one. Well, what does that require though? It requires listening when they say help. It requires communication up and down, vertical, horizontal. It requires communication and coordination. And there's where we have the challenges. So within those challenges, you mentioned that assessment has to be the first and it's often done poorly. And so within that, that, that context of assessment being really important first, you and your article talk about the failures and preparedness for this pandemic that we're still going through right now. So why don't you yeah. share with us about that? We see it everywhere. We see it. It, it, you know, gentlemen like yourself and your future students, listen, the research that you do is being done in order to give the document over to politicians and others in leadership to say, this is the empirical literature. This is the data to support you making the best possible decision given our assessment. You can't take care of an issue or a problem unless you've assessed and figured out what the problem is. That's the very first thing that has to be done in any community. Assessments are done um, at the lowest level and they go up to the, to the top levels so that you can know what dangers are lurking and what possible threats and hazards may affect you the most statistically. If you don't take heed to that, you won't be able to prepare for that. Now, when CDC or when public health come to you, when researchers come to you, when emergency managers come to you, when the fire chief or somebody comes to you and they say, you know, we need to do, or even if you're in Australia and they say, you know, you need to use the tribal ways to burn in this manner in order to control fires in the future, someone needs to listen to that assessment. If you do not listen to and take heed to the assessment made by emergency management, disaster management, or public health professionals, you're doomed to failure. You have failed before you even begin because they've spent their life studying, researching, and looking at these issues. It's not a political issue. It's a pragmatic issue that needs to be moved upon and the resources need to be given in order to avoid failure. 
if you look at most of the failures that have done, somebody somewhere before it occurred said, oh, by the way, we need to do this. We need to do this because this is going to happen. Unfortunately, what happens is most politicians can't bring it amongst themselves to open their purse and spend money for something that may happen. So they wait for it to happen. And then they go, oh, my God. And they have to spend too much money. So one of my blessings that I get is I get to talk to people like you before we actually do the interview. And you said that the greatest form of mitigation is voting. I want you to. okay. Oh, you got me there. Okay, listen. So when I was writing my articles and one of the greatest things that I have noted is that and and, and anecdotally, most of your listeners will understand this and I'm going to tie this in. The greatest form of mitigation, because mitigation is preparing. It's not, it's not, it's not response. It's, it's mm. not recovery. It's, 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 it's looking at the long-term needs so that we can really put a dent in what may happen. It may not stop the hazard, may not do anything other than decrease the out, decrease the damage and lessen the outcome, the negative outcomes. Now, if you really want to make sure that you have the most money for your mitigation efforts, put the right people in office. Vote mm-hmm. for people who understand what it is you're going through, who can relate to what is happening within your segment of society. Now, look around the world, one world, one way. Look around, and what is it that the first thing that most people who have political desires or parochial needs do? They affect your ability to vote. They take away your ability to vote. And that significantly affects the resiliency, the coping capacity, and the the potential growth of communities when you don't have people representing you who say, I understand what we need, and I will be a voice for what we need. Hmm. How did systems theory relate to preparedness? You mentioned this earlier. Uh, uh, within, the, within the United States, we are very decentralized from the state down to the counties. And so there's different, there's over 4,000 police departments. They don't all work on one federal law. And the federal law, even though we have FEMA, FEMA is like a big brother to us. And we call upon them to help us when we're in times of need. But in this system, if you look at systems theory, It's talking about mechanisms, different mechanisms and different parts all pulled together to work in unison towards a common goal or objective. Well, we have the states, we have the counties, we have all of these decentralized parts. You saw it during our pandemic. We call upon the uh, uh, our agencies. Please help us. We need this in order to help us. Well, FEMA has resources. Our national stockpile, CDC, has resources. Department of Health has resources. And then, of course, all of the states, they have their resources. And we even have EMAC, which are like group regional areas that work together to help each other. The states are next to each other. Everybody work in unison. But what does that mean? Well, if you look at systems theories, it's, it, it clearly states that in order for the system to work, what is needed must be clearly communicated throughout the whole parts and integral parts of the system. I noted a failure in communication. 
a failure in coordination, and a failure in the logistics supply chain. Well, already the system is fragmented if that happens. And system theory addresses that. Remember, the America's system is called the National Preparedness System. Everyone on the same page, coordinating, communicating, and collaborating towards what? A common operating picture based on what? An assessment that, boy, we're in trouble. Mm. Yeah, right. Well, if all of these are fragmented, the parts of it, it doesn't flow. It doesn't work. The theory is based on all of these working in unison towards the common good. The incident command system that we use here in this country, very hierarchical, very wide in scope in its ability, but it's a system. Everyone has to use the same nomenclatures. Same common terms, terminology for communication. They all have to understand, well, what are we facing? Well, if we're all facing something different, the resources will not be brought to bear to deal with what really is challenging us. And right. that's where we failed during COVID. Uh, everyone was moving in different part directions and you don't bring each other together. In this particular case, the world needs to move in the same direction. What's facing us is the same thing that happens to Africans or those in Malaysia or Indonesian brothers or, or in India. The same thing that happens to those in, in, in Europe is the same thing with the Delta variant that's going to happen to humanity. And so we know it's threatening us. We all just need to get on the same page and move in the same direction. What's it going to take to make that happen? I beg your pardon? What's it going to take? To make that happen, vote. <laughs> get the right people. There you go. Mitigate. Get the right people in office that aren't trying to do back room deals with a scotch and a cigar or not looking at the bottom line. Uh, what's in it for me? You, if you move away from pull money other than using money to build on villages. And, and, and educate individuals that, do, that deserve better education. Move away from your own parochial needs. Move away from humanity's weaknesses to a more altruistic view of what we can do as a planet for each. There should never be on this planet. When you've got shows like Star Trek, They've already shown us what we need to do. <laughs> get rid of the monetary system. Get rid of this stuff and say a hungry mouth in India, a hungry mouth in Malaysia, our brothers suffering in Burma. If they are suffering, then we should be suffering with them, too. There should never be a hungry mouth on God's planet. Never. We should, we, we, we've got more than enough resources to make sure that brothers and sisters elsewhere have the, the medication that they need, the shots, the vaccines they need, the education they need, it always comes back to money, to greed. We need to change what is important in the political strata and the political system. Every Everyone on this planet deserves what our Constitution and our De Declaration of Independence said. The right to uh, freedom, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, things that block that are usually done by people who are in office. Right.
And you're talking about leadership, I think, and in your book, uh, Transforming Disaster Response, you emphasise transformational leadership principles are really that core of sustainability, sustainable disaster response. Right. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, when you, I, I, I was talking earlier with you, and, and one of the things, and this is extremely important, we can talk about natural disasters. We can talk about uh, uh, human-made uh, disasters. And then we could talk about technological disasters, our, our plants that we're building that spew out chemicals and so forth. But I think there's another disaster that should be listed with those other three. And it is anthropogenic disaster. Natural disaster, human-made disaster, technological disaster are exacerbated by, anthrop by anthropogenic which means the bad decision-making by human beings in leadership, either through action or through inaction. If you don't do something that should be done in order to decrease uh, uh, threat and hazards, then you've what you've done is ensured a negative outcome. If you don't build a levee, if you don't build uh, a, a, a bridge, if you don't build uh, uh, barriers, if you don't do... If you don't have a master planning uh, uh, planning zone, if you don't do the things that are necessary, if you don't ensure people are fed, if you don't do what is necessary in order to ensure that disasters don't become worse, then you are a part of the disaster. You've just amplified it. And the thing that amplifies disasters the most is poor leadership or a lack thereof. Merely being in a position of leadership does not make you a leader. Subsequent actions and decisions made make you a leader. Mm -hmm. Therefore, therefore, put them on, put them up there and say, like Jim Brown said to Richard Pryor, and most people your age probably won't remember this. He goes, what you going to do? So, <laughs> so the, the bottom line is, what you going to do? The bottom line is you've got to make sure that you have strong leadership Hold them accountable and responsible. If you do that, then you'll start to see some changes. Remember, this a hurricane is going to do what a hurricane does. Ray Charles used to say, make it do what it do, baby. Well, it knows what to do. It's going to destroy, okay? It's going to, you know, floods going to destroy. When you have a hurricane, it's not the winds that do most of the damage. It's the water that does most of the damage. And then what does more damage than that? People who didn't make decisions that, wait a minute, we're going to flood. <laughs> and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And it's worse. So men and women in positions of leadership can amplify an already poor situation. So that's what I mean about uh, leadership and making sure that you, you know, grow and do the right things. We in academia, individuals who are researchers, we have a responsibility to speak up and say and provide the strongest possible literature that can help uh, uh, decision makers and leaders make decisions. After that, it's on them. Now, if that means we have to get in an office and run ourselves, then so be it. But the bottom line, the whole matter is, is institutions like yours and University of Auckland and Harvard University and Georgia State University and these universities across the, the world, 
there, we need to take those researchers, particularly in disaster management, fire management, and all of the other response and recovery, now public health and help me. And you need to give the most potent, objective, beautiful research you can to help get these individuals the right tools to be able to use the lessons learned that we gave them to make the best practices to make and develop the best policies going forward. To build what? Stronger communities, more resilient communities, so they don't have to rely on the guy upstairs. That sometimes doesn't answer their plea. The more resilient a village becomes, the least they require the city to come out there to give them something. And if you're in a small country, it's usually the military that come out because they're more centralized. Mm. We don't need, the more you can rely on your own uh, um, um, systems to strengthen your capacity to resist in or be more resilient or to bounce back <clears throat> from social disruptions and challenges, the stronger you are. And that starts with home. It starts with an individual, not with just the village. The village is only as strong as the individual. Get your education. Uh, learn. Be open-minded. Challenge your own thinking. Uh, uh, um, you know, do some introspection. You know, we all have human frailties and weaknesses. I had to do mine. I'll tell you, years ago when somebody told me, boy, Mike, before I was Dr. Brown, boy, Mike, you were all arrogant. Me? Arrogant? Well, heck, yes, I was a very arrogant. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize it because I had a very militaristic, uh, no, no holds barred, conservative uh, 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 thought, thinking thought of mine because I think thought a lot of myself. Well, now, years later, I look back from that 40 years ago when I was a young officer in the military and I realized that, wait a minute, I was pretty arrogant. I wasn't just cocky, I was arrogant. But I had to come to a realization that first, think about it. Is it possibility? Well, when I thought about it longer, two or three years later, I said, you know, that's something I need to work on. It, I think my wife tells me, and that's my, that's the house commander. She says, you're a much better person. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. Thank you. <laughs> my son said, you're a much better person. I'm like, namaste. Thank you. I'm like, yes. I'm like, that's good. I mean, that's good. You know, because those people around you, those people that care about you, that tell you this, that's how you can, that's your best beginning. That is the beginning. Working on self is the beginning of working on becoming a more resilient community. You can't build a resilient community when you're a jerk. You can't do it. It's difficult. You know, you're starting from scrap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you 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 have to realize your own what? Oh my God! I just got it, Doctor Hanson. You got to do an assessment of self. If you you have to make an assessment of your own weakness and frailties, and when you work on that, you become a stronger individual, which means you help your neighbor become a stronger uh, neighbor, and you help your community become stronger. So everything begins with an assessment, even if it's a self assessment. Yeah, wow. that's really good. 
I think that's really great for aspiring aspiring emergency managers. Uh, I think education helps us understand yes, into right. what we don't know and realize we don't know everything. And yes, it makes right. us a little more tentative with offering our advice at times. That's right. So if someone was going to um, move into emergency management or someone who's aspiring for leadership in emergency management, you've just shared some nuggets of wisdom there, but maybe what's, what's one or two things you would say that they should build into their toolkit um, before they move into emergency management leadership from your perspective? Um, I'll go back on what I said about human frailties. If you look in your communities, you'll find that the most challenged are generally the people who have been marginalized. You know, people who live in rich areas, they have insurance. They can mm. build their homes on the coast where beaches are. They can build their homes where there's forest fires or fires because they can rebuild and they have insurances. Right. Part of being an emergency manager is not, is emergency manager is the most holistic profession, I would say, in all of the toolbox of academia. Because you have to not only be a politician, because you don't have many, very many resources, but you have to be a sociologist. If you don't like black people or you don't like uh, yellow people or you don't like poor people, don't become emergency manager because you've got to deal with people, period. And the people that have the most challenges are the people you're probably not used to. So get over it. If you're going to be an emergency manager, learn to be a social scientist, a sociologist, a psychologist. Because you're going to have to get into the mind of people who you sit in the front of who may be politicians. They're all about themselves. And you've got to figure out, wow, what makes this guy tick or this gal? What makes them mm. You've got to understand human nature. You cannot be gung-ho military blob. No, you've got to have the whole toolbox. You've got to be a meteorologist. You know, what is it about this heat wave and this heat scientist? You also have to be nuns judge non-judgmental. Keep an open mind. When somebody comes to you and says, I think there's going to be a terrorist attack. They think there's going to be somebody flying planes into buildings. Richard B. Clark saw that ahead of time, but most of the government here did not. Keep an open mind about individuals who come to you and say, I think we have a challenge. We may have a potential pandemic or epidemic on our hands. Keep an open mind. Do not take things sensitive. When people when people don't buy into your argument or your plan, keep in mind there's a way to get it done. So therefore, you now you've got to be the politician. Being an emergency manager means being able to persuade, being able to use the information at hand in order to get people to do buy-in. The community as well as the politicians. Boy, is that a balancing act. So now you're going to be a circus performer. <laughs> so it, you've got to be a jack of all trades or Jane of all trades, but do not have preconditions. I also say, get to know your emergency managers and volunteer. Volunteering and becoming a part of community volunteering gets you to understand what emergent groups are going through, the Red Cross and other groups that are donating money and time. Understand what it is that they're going through and how you can harness their participation and their support in the future. Don't sit around waiting for you to get a position in emergency management or filling out forms. Volunteer. Become a part of the community. 
Uh, and, and so do you understand what's challenging the community? Get understand public health. People, people die from issues in public health. Work with your public health administrators and your public health to find out the challenges they have. So do you understand? Work with your fire department. These are going to be your partners. Remember when I talked about the system? Mm -hmm. There are what better way to get to know the system before you do become emergency manager than to be a part of that system. So get active. Don't let inertia set in. When you're in academia, if you're in an undergraduate program, or if you're in a master's program, there is no reason why you shouldn't be volunteering your time with some agency that will be a part of an agency or an organization that'll be a part of your team forward. Get out there and involve your time. Don't sit around going, I didn't get that. Please get over it. Get that knowledge about what it is that all these different agencies and even corporate corporations here in this country, some of the biggest contributors to being able to house and look out for persons that are in need are Walmart and Sam's clubs and all these huge box stores and organizations that donate uh, supplies and things. There's nothing better than already being set up with because you've done work with them to saying, Hey, you know, Sally, I really need no problem. We got to cover how much lumber you need. No problem. We'll get it there. Because why? Because you spent time with these organizations, you know, how to work. corporations included get involved in the community do something worthwhile, challenge your own human frailties. If you're a racist, get over it. If you don't like certain people, get over it. You know, you do this, if you're an emergency manager, you're there as, as, a, as a buffer and a knight in shining armor to ensure that your community suffers less than it would have if you weren't there. Get it done, get it done. Dr. Michael Brown, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. What's the best way for someone to get hold of you if they want to reach out to you? I'm on LinkedIn. You can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm not shy. <laughs> hold on a second. <laughs> That's fine. Um, you can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm willing to talk to uh, any anybody that wants to try to make me a better person and make themselves a better person or to collaborate. Wonderful. Um, best way. Yes, sir. I've enjoyed that. Really appreciate your time. And for our students, undergraduate and graduate, and also um, the people that may watch the recording of this, uh, we'll have the links to Dr. Brown for his LinkedIn profile and anything else, any other ways to get hold of him will be in the description on YouTube, on Facebook, or on LinkedIn. And also, if you have not got your graduate degree, your master's degree in emergency response and risk management, then do reach out to us, reach out to me on LinkedIn, reach out to us on uard.ac.nz or uard.org. And uh, right now, we actually have a new way that we're delivering our undergrad and graduate programs leveraging technology so that you can learn anywhere, anytime. And that means that the cost is reduced, your flexibility is increased, and you can open up your financial earning opportunities as well as opening up your career opportunities. So do reach out to us for the innovative ways that we're doing that. Look forward to seeing you on the next video cast. <laughs>